and welcome to Teach With Your Hands, the podcast where we bring you the confidence, connections, and business understanding you need to teach the crafts you love. I'm Amy Costello. Hey everybody and welcome to the show. My guest today taught himself woodworking from the pages of books and magazines like Fine Woodworking, and he's been a full-time woodworker and teacher for more than 30 years. He's currently a permanent instructor at Salt Lake Community College, and he teaches workshops at schools and events around the country and out of his workshop at home. Coming full circle, he's the author of more than 100 articles in Fine Woodworking magazine and is revered as an expert at using and restoring hand tools. Chris Gochner, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Amy. Good to be here. So let's start by hearing a little bit more about how you got started woodworking and some of the teachers who've had the most influence on your life, woodworking or otherwise. Okay. Um, I, I guess I have to go all the way back to high school. I wasn't a fabulous student in, in high school. I, got, I, I did graduate and did <laughs> sufficiently well. But my favorite subject was woodshop. And that was really my first exposure to woodworking. I did the prescribed assignments. And if I got those done, I could do whatever I wanted. And that was always building skateboards. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the teacher was great. Darwin Christensen was his name. I'm not sure if he loved his work. He seemed a little bit ornery. And, um, <laughs> but nonetheless, he was nice to me and accommodated things. At that same time, I competed, you know, all different slalom, freestyle, half pipe, that kind of stuff back in the day. At one of the competitions, a gentleman came up to me and I had a pretty nice skateboard and he said, if I can take your skateboard, I'll bring you another one tomorrow and I'd like you to ride it and give me feedback on what you think. And, you know, I was 15 years old and that was my pride and joy. But I trusted the guy, and he kept his promise. He brought me a skateboard back, and that, that formed an amazing friendship and connection. The gentleman's name was Dmitry Milovich. He was really a pioneer in snowboards, likely the first snowboard manufacturer in the world. I mean, it's disputed, but there were a few going on at the same time. And he asked me to come and work with him and develop these snowboards, and they also had a a line of skateboards. And I probably worked with Dimitri for six to eight years, and it was just amazing. The things I learned from him, not so much about woodworking, but really about life and about creating things and problem solving. And it, it was it was a hard go. But from Dimitri, I just learned a lot that to this day is indispensable in navigating uh, as an artisan. Another one was a gentleman named Carl Tim. Carl was really the finest antique restorer in the Salt Lake area, really spent his whole life restoring antiques. He had amazing furniture in his shop all the time, in and out. And he was willing to let me come and just scrutinize it, take the drawers out, tip it upside down, look at the texture of the finishing and all this stuff. So Carl Tim was a, a real mentor of mine, and I'm indebted to him. So I know that you consider yourself self-taught as far as the skills yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> um, how does that influence your attitude toward teaching? Well, making a living at woodworking is challenging at best. And I think 
I don't know, the way I went was maybe even more difficult because I didn't ever have any business models to observe and to learn from. And so it really did take persistence and a real passion. So I guess, therefore, being able to help students bypass some of that or the learning curve is probably a little bit quicker if you're being shown the way rather than just figuring it out. I have to go back to Darwin, my high school teacher. So I had been woodworking 10 years, and I presented my first proposal to find woodworking, and they went with it. That led to a few things. So the article was published, and it was on a, an armoire. And they had a, a booth at the coming year's IWF in Atlanta. And so we shipped the armoire back there, and I spent a few days back in Atlanta. And then they had a publicist with a magazine that kind of did an interview and talked to me. And then they published an article in the Salt Lake Tribune. And interestingly, Darwin saw the article, and he reached out to me. He basically said that he didn't think he had an influence in anybody, you know, at school. Yeah. And so that was just a real positive thing to him, that somebody that he had mentored and taught had done something with the woodworking. And so I'm going to turn the tables now. This past year at the, the Utah Design Exhibit, that was a real neat thing for me. I think at that exhibit, 50 to 60% of the presenters had a connection to Slick, past students, current students, that kind of thing. And sort of like Darwin, to me as an instructor, that was just very fulfilling to see that through possibly some of my instruction and example and that kind of thing, people were pursuing something that means a lot to me. So tell me about the first class that you ever taught. You know, my first teaching was actually at the University of Utah in the art department, teaching woodworking to sculpture majors. And it was great. I think I did it for seven, eight years, something like that. What kind of stuff were you teaching? You know, <laughs> I'm not a sculptor yeah. or, or really an artist. I mean, I am in my own way, but it, it's more related to furniture. Yeah. And so it was really more safe use of equipment and joinery and that kind of stuff. And then from there, they would do their art. So it, it was a little bit of a strange mix, but it worked. That led to other things. So I did do my first workshop at my home shop, and it was building a tool chest. And, you know, I think I had three or four people, which was as much as I could handle in such a small space. And one of them was named Glenn Fenn. He was at Salt Lake Community College in the wood shop. He ran the facility out there. And after that class, he said, I wonder if you'd like to teach it slick. And, and so at that time, I was actually at the U and at Slick. Ultimately, what ended up at the U is I, I taught there in the day, and the U told me that they wanted to do night classes. And I said, well, I, I teach at Slick in the evenings. And they sort of said, well, you'll have to make the choice. Oh. Um, sort of like, <clears throat> I, I think they thought, obviously, I would prefer to teach with them. Yeah. But, um, it was actually a no-brainer. That Slick is a phenomenal facility, and it's more really what I do. And so at that point, I just transitioned away from the U and teaching at Slick full-time. Cool. It's interesting, too, as a teacher, you learn more as a teacher than your students do, for sure. 
maybe 16 years ago, there was a program down in Ephraim, Utah, at Snow College called the Traditional Building Skills Institute. And it was a really amazing program. It offered workshops and classes on all traditional craft, blacksmithing, window making, timber framing, adobe, carving. I mean, they must have had 25 different workshops that were available. They contacted me about teaching a woodworking class down there. And, and at the time, I was just kind of getting into hand woodworking or traditional woodworking. And I'll be honest with you, I, I told them that I would love to do it, and they wouldn't have to pay me. <laughs> sort of like, I was so excited about the prospects of, of doing it. Of course, they were happy to pay. It was really limited facility, benches and tools and all that kind of stuff. But they were committed to it, and over the years, they really improved things as far as supplies and workspace and that kind of stuff. And But it was the most amazing thing. There were students that came for 16 years. You know, it, it was kind of neat because we would all show up every year, and we pretty much knew each other. I mean, we'd get new people, and some would trickle out, but it was this core group of people that had this passion for hand woodworking. And again, I, I learned way more than any of them because I would have to find the project, figure out how to build it, and it forces you to learn because when you have a group of 15 people, it needs to be successful, yeah. you know, and therefore it really forces you to learn efficiencies and shortcuts and, you know, so again, I just, I learned so much from the opportunity of being a teacher. What happened to that program? Oh... I don't know exactly what what ended up happening with the the guy who really started it. I mean, it was actually a group up here in Salt Lake that were like historic preservationists that wanted to train students that could go in and work with adobe or plastering or windows, you know, in these historic structures. So it was a group that had a board and they connected with Snow College. But I think ultimately what happened, the funding and all that kind of stuff got a little bit difficult, and so they ultimately decided to kind of phase it out. And that was maybe five years ago. I stand by the fact, I don't know that there was much like that anywhere in the country. The skill level of the students was really high because they'd been doing it for years. Yeah. And we would go down there, and it, it was amazing what we could do in three days. And they were long days. Oftentimes, you know, we'd start at 7 and work till 10 at night and just have a little lunch break and a dinner, but really immersed in the craft. And those days will be missed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the workshops that you teach in your workshop. Well. <laughs> How often does that happen? Well, <laughs> it's very sporadic. All you right. know, real yeah. sporadic. Partly because I just keep so busy. Yeah. I do private workshops. You know, I have a handful of students that come over once a week or some of them come once a month or something like that where we just work. But I do hope to get a little bit more organized and formal in offering some workshops here at the Joiner's Bench. That's my, my shop here in Murray. Yeah. Can you maybe compare what it's like to teach at Slick versus workshops, whether they're at your oh, shop or yeah, elsewhere? Yeah. Slick is always semester-length classes where it's like yeah. four months of working yeah. on something. Yeah, that is a big difference. 
not quite so much pressure. Yeah. You know, say when I go to Mark Adams, you just have to have a lot more organization and focus because you've got five days to build a pretty significant thing. That being said, in the real focused window of time, you can really get a lot done because, you know, five days of full-on building, you can really get in a, you know, a rhythm and, and get focused on what you're doing. Is um, there a difference in tool maintenance stuff, especially for workshops that are at your own shop? You know, I mean, I, I do like them at my own shop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Simply because I know it really well. And I I do maintain the equipment. I mean, it runs like a clock and everything's sharp. And so for me, teaching at my shop is really the easiest. But I'm real impressed. I mean, Mark Adams, their maintenance of equipment and stuff is just top-notch. You know, when I go back there, everything is working. Slick, Sandra does her best. (laughs) (laughs) But she has a lot of people. Yeah. On those machines day in and day out, and they don't oftentimes respect things as they should. And so it, it's an ongoing battle yeah. for, for Sandra to keep things running. Do you have any practical tips for making money at teaching, oh. especially at the beginning? I guess here would be the one thing I could say deliver a good product. And what I mean by that is, you know, the TBSI, you know, we filled that for 16 years. And I think it was because people loved what they were being exposed to and just wanted to come back for more. You know, Slick, kind of the same thing. I remember when we started there, it was a new program, and they wanted 10 students to run the class. And we just had to go drum them up. And a lot of those people have been there for 14, 15 years. And I think it's because what they're able to get from it is worth spending the money And I really just have to say that that is the bottom line. If you deliver a good product where it's good value and people are learning, they'll come back or they'll come. And that, I think, has to be key. Sounds pretty straightforward. (laughs) (laughs) How much experience do you think you need to have before you start trying to teach? Um, It's hard to say. You have to have a good foundation on things. But, you know, I will go back to what I did down at Snow College. I mean, I had been working hand methods and studying up and tuning tools for four or five years. And to be honest, I was probably the best one around to offer that class. But my knowledge is nothing like it is now after 16 years. And so what I'm saying is by being put on the spot, it kind of forces you to learn. And I wouldn't say at the time, I would say leading up to the event. You have to do your homework. You have to really strategize and organize and plan. So I think you certainly have to have a foundation, but there's no harm in maybe getting going and learning a bit as you go. Yeah. I feel like some people are going to feel like they have to know everything before they're ready to start. But the way you talk about it, you almost can't learn everything until yeah. you start teaching and learning yeah. that stuff. So Yeah. It's, again, I've really enjoyed the, the kind of the two different paths. The custom building was a real enjoyable way to do things, and being able to take that and share the knowledge and skills with other people is extremely rewarding. Is there anything that you miss about building custom stuff well, since you don't do it as much so now? That, yeah, so this is really interesting. So... The one thing about doing the custom stuff is it forces you to keep current. You know, you're always reinventing the wheel. I mean, I never did a line of furniture or anything like this. Basically, people would come and say, I'd like you to build this. And 
it was diverse styles and materials. And so by kind of being forced to create that, you learned a bunch. Therefore, I would say that you could be a bit complacent as a teacher, you know, because doing that kind of stuff, you are forever learning and discovering and creating anew. And teaching, you might be able to just kind of rest and just say, well, I've done that, and now I'm just going to kind of... And, and that, I'll be honest with you, that was the thing that was so good about the internships. Chris hosted five interns at his shop last summer. Those individuals brought these projects that they wanted to create, and of course, I'm immersed in it with them. And so it was like I was able to be a part of the creation of five pieces and so that kind of makes up for the stuff that I'm not doing in the commissioned world. As far as feeling like you're creating or just keeping current? Keeping both. Mainly keeping current and exercising, you know, my mind and problem solving and that kind of stuff. And so it does keep you fresh as long as, you know, the students are building kind of ambitious and exciting things and you're involved in that, it, it kind of makes up for what is missing in the commission world. What do you think is the most difficult part of teaching? Well, my method for teaching is a little bit different. I think I once had a student at Mark Adams. He liked my method, but he, I think he called it organic. I'm not a textbook teacher, and I'm not one that stands up there and lectures and lectures and lectures. The way I teach is by doing. And maybe that's what he was sort of alluding to, that the whole process, very little lecturing, but a lot of hands-on doing. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of challenges. I mean, and it varies on the different group dynamic, but say if I go into Mark Adams and you've got 14 to 16 students that you need to keep going at all times, you really have to think a lot about dispersing them into different aspects of the project. Oh, so they don't all need the joiner at the right. same time. Yeah. I do spend a lot of time in advance thinking about that. You know, while some people are working on this, others can be doing this, and yet others can be doing this. And it's sort of tricky not to overwhelm them, because in a sense, to do that, you kind of have to tell them all three different aspects and hope they remember or but that's a juggling act, you know, being able to expedite the process and keep everyone busy. You know, I learned early on that it's just no fun to be standing around waiting for access to equipment. So that's one thing that I'm sort of mindful of. Another, and this is maybe a weakness of mine as a teacher, but I sometimes feel I don't force the students to think enough on their own. Mm. You know, they'll come to me as the problem solver. And I think that I need to do better at maybe being a second or third resort. But first, they use their own minds. Because ultimately, that is how they will really become a woodworker. You know, being able to navigate their own way through a challenge or a problem. So that's something that I'm a little bit aware of. But it has to be a, a blend. Yeah. Encouraging them to do their own independent thinking and then being able to help them when, when they're stumped or, yeah. or, or stuck. And, and again, I do find that the most promising woodworkers that come from my programs are independent. They're quite independent. They spend a lot of time outside of class looking at things, thinking about things, and then they bring it to me and, and they'll say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think? And I think that in some ways is the best way to learn. It's going to be hard, too, because you have to make sure people are being safe. You don't want to 
Roman free too much. Yeah, that's oftentimes where it can get a little bit tricky where you try to spread out to three different stations or whatever because there's only so many eyes or assistants to keep track of things. Yeah. How do you measure yourself if a class has been successful? (laughs) I can definitely tell when they haven't been. I mean, I I just remember, and these happened every now and again, particularly at the traditional building skills. I would be driving home after the week, and I'd just be shaking my head. (laughs) Wow. I mean, and it wasn't a total failure, but things could have been better. (laughs) I, I remember on one of those drives home, and I had a friend of mine, Steve Overhoff. He would come and assist me at Snow College. And so oftentimes we'd be driving home together, both shaking our heads. (laughs) And he made a comment that really sticks with me. And he said, you know, they have to bring something to the table. Yeah. In other words, you got to meet halfway. I mean, as an instructor, you know, you can do this, but they also have to be a part of that. As far as just... Commitment to what they're doing? or And just yeah. kind of abilities and, and being present and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And I do believe that. And a little bit that's kind of where when I w- was saying that I think the best students are the one that outside of class are brainstorming and thinking. That's bringing something to the table. Yeah. Not just sort of showing up and saying, what should I do tonight? Yeah. What's an unsuccessful class? Maybe that'll help us answer the question. Um, Too many mistakes. Students making too many mistakes. And therefore, they're making mistakes because they weren't informed adequately. Or, you know, I mean, there can be a whole bunch of reasons. And I will say that it got much better as time went on. And I think you have to have those sort of frustrating failures that really disappoint you to become better. Because it's like, we're not doing that again. we, We can't. And really, that is how you do get better. And I don't know that there's any way to do it except go through it. I know when it's rough. Yeah. (laughs) And then I also know when it's been real, real good. Is some of that how frustrated or excited students are by the end of the class? Yeah. And, and you know, there's another thing. It's group dynamics. Mm. You know, some groups just get it. And it's amazing what can be done. And then others just don't. And it's just challenging and difficult the whole time. And that's just a bit luck of the draw. And then as an instructor, you have to be able to accommodate. I would honestly say that I've experienced that in the last couple of years, where two years ago, a group was just off the charts with skill and abilities and that kind of thing. And Everyone got it done, and it involved some real technical methods. And it became clear to me this next year that that just wasn't going to happen. And rather than force this group to fit into that scenario, we adapted. And we simplified things and used other joinery methods. So I think that's something you have to be able to do also is, you know, get a sense for who's there and adjust accordingly. The worst thing you can do as an instructor is create a stressful environment for your students. I remember a gal coming to me, and she had done a class the previous year, and then she had taken mine, and she just said, man, last year was just painful. It was stressful. We were pressured. We felt incompetent. 
and this year I feel like I'm capable. And therefore, I think as an instructor, you do have to empathize. You know, you have to realize these guys are paying a lot of money. They're taking time out of their lives to be there. Make it an enjoyable thing. I'll be doing a class and students will say, well, how are we doing? In other words, are we going to get it done? Yeah. And I usually won't go there. I'll just say, you know what, we're doing great. Because if we start working with the end goal, then it becomes stressful. And people make mistakes if they're pressured. You know, they're not thinking clearly. And so that's one thing that I've really learned is create an enjoyable, fun environment and it will be more productive. And don't worry so much about, are we going to get it done? I mean, we do our darndest, but there are a lot of other things that are more important. And it really comes down to enjoying the time that you're there. Have you seen changes in the kind of students that come and take woodworking classes from you? Especially the ones who aren't the ones who are there every single year for 15 years. I think... Early on, I did notice maybe a slightly higher skill level in the students. <laughs> and I think it was that schools were relatively new. And so when they first came on the scene, it was the hardcore woodworkers that came. Yeah. And then as time went on, they kind of got their fill. And, and I have kind of noticed it being a little bit more novices and, and that kind of thing. Um, Is that maybe, encouraging? you that there are new people getting into well, yeah. yeah yeah for sure you know because in a way that needs to happen yeah or things end mm-hmm. you, you know so yeah but I think you you have to adapt a little bit because I would do a class repeated but three years later and it would always puzzle me how three years ago we got to this point and this year we only got to this point what's going on yeah but all I can say there is it is really the group dynamics and, and who comes. And, and with that, you offer a good product, ensure that they enjoy themselves, and just do the best you can. Cool. <laughs> Chris also wanted me to add that in some cases, student scale in recent years has been much higher than it was when he first started. And students often come better equipped because good tools are much more available nowadays. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? There is one person that deserves the most credit for my enjoyment in the craft and whatever successes I've enjoyed, and that would happen to be my wife, Natalie. She's an amazing person and a phenomenal support and always has been. In fact, she knows woodworking is a difficult path, and I think she knew it the very time we decided that we were going to attempt this, you know, Mm -hmm. but she encouraged it. I had subscribed to Fine Woodworking for years, you know. Their motto at the time, and I think it still is, is it's a reader-written magazine. And I had been doing a lot of these armoires because they were somewhat popular among the clients that I had and had developed some interesting technique. And I thought, you know, maybe we should pitch this armoire to Fine Woodworking as an article. And so, you know, Natalie worked with me in writing up the proposal and getting some photographs together, and we sent that off to Fine Woodworking, and lo and behold, they liked it. You know, just one thing led to another, and and now it's been over 20 years that I've been a part of Fine Woodworking, and just a great group of people. They've, They've treated me well, and I'm indebted 
to the pages of Fine Woodworking for teaching me and then giving me the opportunity to share some of my knowledge with others. But it goes back to my wonderful wife, Natalie, and she's just, you know, my biggest fan and support. And I think that every artisan probably needs one of those. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been lucky in that regard. That's wonderful. I think that's a pretty good place to stop, actually. So why don't you tell me where people can learn from you right now? Well, I'll be teaching next year at Salt Lake Community College. I am teaching at Mark Adams School of Woodworking in Indianapolis in June. And beyond that, it would just be reach out to me in person if you're interested in doing one-on-one instruction or group workshops. Do you have a website where people can Um, get your email and stuff? It's uh, chrisgochner.com. Okay. I will schedule and list classes there at this point. I, I don't have them, but hopefully... In the coming year, we'll schedule a few three-day workshops here at the Joiner's Bench. Okay, sounds good. Thank you very much, Amy, yeah. for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for being <laughs> on my show. If you like this episode, you can visit us on iTunes and give us a rating. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at TWYH Podcast. Support for the show comes from listeners like you. Join us on Patreon, where you can snag all kinds of cool perks, like getting early episode releases and access to unedited interviews. Seriously, there is just so much cool stuff I have to cut out of each one. You can also send in questions for future guests, which are announced exclusively there. You can even join the Mastermind group that I meet with quarterly to discuss the future of the podcast, who we should be interviewing next, and what themes and ideas need to be explored. This week, no joke, I have three new patrons to announce. These guys are true early adopters. They jumped on the bandwagon without hearing a single episode. They are Kevin, Chris Proctor, and Preston Norris. Thanks so much, you guys. Your support is what makes my podcast possible. Teach With Your Hands is produced by Amy Costello. The music is Admin by Pottington Bear. Hear more at soundofpicture.com. Wow, mommy.